it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we welcome back our special friend, Vitaly Katzenelson, CEO of the Denver-based investment firm IMA, award-winning writer known for his common sense, great storytelling, and wisdom. He's written for Financial Times, Barron's, and his articles are published on my favorite website, Contrarian Edge. Vitaly is joining us today to discuss his third book, Soul in the Game. Vitaly is easily one of my favorite writers, and I've been enjoying his articles for years. They bring wisdom, great insights, and fantastic stories to investing and life. So, Vitaly, thank you again for joining us today. We appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to come talk to us. And uh, we're really excited to talk to you about your book and all the things that you got going on. So, I guess my first question is, do you consider yourself an investor who writes or a writer who invests? Wow. Well, first of all, Dave and Andrew, thank you so much. <laughs> so in the past, I was somewhat embarrassed that I you know, wrote so much, and I would say, I'm an investor who writes. And now I am just look at myself as a person who also invests, but who thinks through writing. Because investing is just one of my identities. You know, it's my main occupation. I spend a lot of time doing this, but I'm so much more than just an investor, right? And writing is now inseparable part of my personality or my identity. Because without writing, my IQ, you know, would be 20 points lower. And I need my IQ needs all the help it can get. So. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So I guess what prompted you to write this great new book, uh, Soul in the Game? Over the years, I would write articles. I would send them out to my readers. And a lot of times, some of my articles were about investing. Most of them are, were. But there were, a lot, over time, more and more, you know, I started to write about non-investment topics. And people would reach out to me and say, Vitaly, you should take your non-investment articles and put them into a book. And I was somewhat resistant to that because you know, I still were certainly kind of conflicted about my identity. <laughs> so I thought I was an investor who writes. But then I wrote this article uh, about Tchaikovsky and about his struggles he had writing you know, this beautiful sextet for strings. And when I wrote this article, I realized that the struggle Tchaikovsky had composing that beautiful music is very similar to the struggles anybody who writes 
goes through as well. So after I was done with this article, it hit me over the head that somebody who reads it, who actually who wants to learn how to write or who is struggling as a writer would really benefit. But more importantly, I realized I have written so many articles over the years just like that on somebody that they could help others. So my goal was just really take all the articles I wrote about life, put them into a book, and that was it. But then I kind of did that. And then when I was almost done with the book, and when I say almost, I think literally working on the last chapter, I stumbled on Stoic philosophy and ended up you know, telling my editor at Herman House that I need to take a break and I just really want to, I want to study Stoic philosophy. And I ended up writing almost a third of the book about Stoic philosophy, completely, you know, completely for this book. And in all fairness, I ended up going back and writing a lot more new articles, new essays or chapters for this book, rewriting old ones. So it's, it's a lot more than just, just a collection of my articles. I hope, you know, you guys can tell me what you think about that. So yeah, I definitely think it's more than just a compilation of your articles. And I think, you know, the thing that I enjoy, about your writing in general, but just about the book too, is you do such a great job of weaving stories and wisdom kind of together. Uh, you've had an interesting life prior to coming to the United States, mm-hmm. as well as some of your adventures here in the United States. And I think that the kind of the juxtaposition of the, I guess the two separate lives mm-hmm. and then coming to the United States and kind of how you look at those things through investing to me has always been very interesting. And because I've been reading your writing for so long, I feel like I kind of know you and I know your family. And even though I've never met your kids, I feel like I know your kids really well. And I know the stoic philosophy became very important to you because you could see it in Twitter. It's kind of changed your Twitter threads or your posts changed from more investment related to pretty much focused on stoic philosophy. And so it's okay. He's definitely going down that rabbit hole. So I wonder where that's going to go. And so that was why it was kind of cool when I got the book and was able to start reading. And I was like, oh, okay, now I'm getting it now. I can I understand where that's kind of going. I think it's actually, I would argue, the, my Twitter thread is kind of a reflection of what I'm reading and doing at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you see what I'm reading and yeah. doing, just follow me on Twitter and say, yeah, you get a very accurate picture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I was wondering, Vitaly, thanks for coming on. If you could maybe expound for people who aren't familiar with you and your great emails, what is it about writing that makes your thinking so clear when it comes around investing? And do you think it's something that average investors who are trying to manage their portfolio should try to implement in their process? Yeah, okay. Now, that's a great question. I think a very important question. So let me tell you about how I write first. I wake up about, it depends on the time of the year, but let's say about five o'clock in the morning. I make a cup of coffee and then I basically uh, write for two hours straight. I try not to get distracted by other things. I put my headphones on, put classical music on and write. And I do this every single day with very rare exception. So now if you think about it, what is writing? Writing is focused thinking because you're thinking about a subject and your mind is just focused on that. So if you think about it, I'm involved in focused thinking 720 hours a year at least. That's a lot of focused thinking, okay? So for me, I think it's very important because I have a scatterbrain. And for me to have thought that's a 
where all the parts are connected together. That's what writing does. It basically connects all the elements of the thought together. And now I have a thought that I can share with the world. Also, it's a process of discovery. The way I look at writing is basically it's a creative process that connects our conscious and subconscious mind. We kind of know what we think, like as at this point in time, on almost any subject, that's the knowledge we have in a conscious mind that's accessible to us. But the subconscious mind is this huge reservoir of knowledge that the only way I can access that by sitting down and doing a focused thinking. Now, this whole conscious subconscious mind is kind of, it's a, some people may say it's kind of a voodoo concept or something. But if you think about this, when you read a book, you read what, 80,000 words. You don't remember, like you remember the concept generally, right? But you don't remember every single word you read, right? But I would argue a lot of that information, some of it was retained in the conscious mind. A lot of it is deposited into a subconscious mind. And I don't know if you guys had this experience, but I had an experience when I would write and suddenly I'm using the word that is kind of new to me, even though I just wrote this word. And it's just basically, Dave, you're, you're laughing, but it probably, probably happened to you, right? Mm-hmm. And because what happened was at some point in time, in some book, I read that word and it was deposited in my subconscious. And then when I was writing, it just, you know, kind of floated to the surface. So I would argue everybody should write. Again, I'm a biased person because that's, that's, it has been very helpful to me. As an investor, I think, well, first of all, I think when you buy a stock or we sell a stock, you should write a journal of why you're buying stock and why you're selling the stock. Because what it does, it truly fleshes out your thinking. And then you will be able to see when you have to express, put your thinking in the paper, you'll be able to see all the deficiency, all the holes in your thinking. And then you actually decide not to buy the stock. Okay, because that's almost like exposing your thinking to another evaluation, I guess. I think everybody should write. I wish I wrote a journal. And if I did not write two hours a day, I would write a journal. And I highly advise other people to do this. And at some point in time, I need to create this new habit. I may write starting journal in the evening before I go to sleep. But I, I think journals would, I write so much that I just, um, I think I wrote a journal for either two weeks or a month. But I found that it was, I did it in the morning and it was always competing with other things I wanted to write. So that's why I'm not writing the journal. But I would highly advise people to start, you know, at least with writing a daily journal. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. 
Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with our finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. I think... I really like that advice and especially the part you're saying where you're trying to figure out whether you want to buy a, a stock or not. I've had newsletters, Dave, you know this, where I pretty much got to the end and then decided I wasn't going to buy the stock. Mm-hmm. And like you said, Vitalik, just kind of want to double click on that idea because it's so key. I think you're really filling in the holes that you don't even realize are in your thought process about a company until you have to. I, I mean, I've seen it with myself where I'm fleshing out an idea and then I'm like, well, what is the data that supports that idea? And then you have to go in the writing process to find that data. You might have never thought about that until later on because you were forced yourself to go through this writing process of fleshing out your thoughts and putting that subconscious to the conscious. Absolutely. So how often do you, I guess in your writing, look back at things that you have written about and how often are you changing your philosophy or your ideas or some of the ways you think about the world. One of the things I really liked that I read in one of your emails, which I try to at least, if I can't read all of them, at least skim them, because there's always a valuable nugget in there, it seems, is you talked about how we make these biases based on our circle around us of, I see my five friends doing this thing. And so I think the whole world works this way. So you know that's kind of like this, I feel like an advanced idea that maybe... I don't know if you were maybe aware of it all your life or if you never knew it existed and then you discovered it and then wrote about it. But like, how often are you coming across those discoveries or maybe like changing your mind about certain ideas? And is it going back to your old writing or is it just kind of trying to learn as much as you can and it just kind of naturally happens? So I think you were talking about the myopic circles idea. Yeah. Mm hmm. I think I have changed my mind. And a lot of times, my experiences, as you grow, you learn, hopefully, right? And my goal, I'm happy to change my mind what I'm, you know, in the future on what I'm thinking today if I arrive to that in a kind of very thoughtful way, right? So I think it's important to go back and look at your thinking and looking for a couple things. Number one, you're looking for the assumptions you made. Like I'm, now I'm talking about the same buying stocks. Like I look at all the assumptions I made in the past. 
and ask yourself, are they still true? Also, look for the logic. If I had a flawed logic or if that thinking was just flawed based on the information I had at that time and if the world has changed and now I need to update my thinking on the subject. The, like when I wrote the myopic circles, let's talk about that. That myopic circles, I think it's a very interesting framework. So let's, let me, let me explain this a little bit. So I don't smoke. I used to smoke when I was 21 years old. I quit when I was 21. And at that time, so if I look at my friends today, none of them smoke. So, and because we are attracted to people who are like us, who share similar values. You know, I'm not judgmental about people who smoke. It's just, their values usually smoking comes with other values that usually conflict, you know, with my values. And therefore it's very easy to think to have this myopia that people don't smoke, right? Well, in reality, 14% of Americans smoke. So statistically we know it's not true, but here's the interesting part. If you find somebody who smokes and those people, most likely their friends also smoke because they're attracted to people who smoke. So like I have a circle that I have this life where my experiences limit my understanding of the world. And I assume that the world is as I see this, but the world is actually a lot more than what I see. Right. And there are a lot of people who have different experiences than I do, etc. So there is an important to understand when you analyze companies, like how it's very easy for us to think that I'll give you one example. We were realizing a company that does money transfers from the United States to Mexico. So my first thought was when I started to realize the company, well, this company is going to be out of business. Why? Because who needs these services if you can just send money by PayPal or Venmo or whatever? Mm-hmm. When I started to do more research about the company, I actually had to go and like, so this company focuses on the Mexico corridor. So people who send money from the U.S. to Mexico, most of these people are migrant workers that come to the United States. So I actually ended up going to Mexican neighborhoods in Denver and observing these people. And I realized they live in a different world. You know, they rarely use credit cards. A lot of them don't have checking accounts in the United States. Most of their relatives in Mexico don't have checking accounts. They live in a cash economy. And so therefore, they don't even know how to spell PayPal. You know, like my point is they don't use PayPal. And they probably won't be using PayPal for a long time. So me going and exposing myself to the new world, you know, kind of expose my opia that I, you know, that I have. And so now when I'm analyzing the company, I'm thinking, is my experience to that company's service limited by my, you know, kind of limited experience? You know, mm-hmm. I'm constantly thinking about that. And that makes a lot of sense. So I guess when you're thinking about those things, you know, how do you research some of these ideas, like I'm thinking in particular about the, like the stoic philosophy, mm-hmm. like, you know, when you sit down to write for two hours, you know, we all know you open a computer, you look at the blank yeah. screen and like, Oh, how do I put stuff on there? Where do you gather the research to fill the head to start putting stuff into writing? So before I wrote about stoic philosophy, I probably read a dozen books. At least I listened to, I don't know, 50, like I can't even tell you how much, how many podcasts I listen to. <laughs> I you know I done you know you know I a lot of learning. So if, if I can write about something, first I need to learn this, right? And then writing helps me to learn it better. But I wrote this book. Like I'll give an example. I wrote a book about a small series of articles about Tesla. 
And by the way, your listeners and viewers can you know, get the free version of this book at teslaanalysis.com. It was a 9,000 word essay or something, a 15,000 word essay about Tesla, and I which is very deep dive into Tesla. Well, I spent probably a month learning about it. Everything I could, I read Musk biography. I read as much as I could. I watched a lot of YouTube videos. I listened to a lot of podcasts. And ended up did a lot of reading. So that's prerequisite to write, to writing. Yeah, that I love. The idea of having to research all that information to be able to put it down, I think is very, very helpful. I think that sometimes people feel like that it just comes to you, but you know, th- they don't realize that there's a lot of work that goes into, you know, those two hours that you're spending. And you know, it's what's important to understand is knowledge is cumulative. In a sense, when I was writing about Tesla, I had to use my knowledge from owning Apple stock or like all the research I did on Apple all the research I did not know care because I was using Apple and Nokia as analogies. So mm-hmm. like in this is a kind of this is what I love about investing. That the longer I do it the better I get because this knowledge doesn't go away. It just accumulates. So I'm thinking again about maybe somebody who's turning in for the first time. They don't know anything about business models. Maybe the idea of Tesla or the idea of Apple excites them. So can you give like a basic overview of that analogy yeah. and why that like makes sense for investors. Yeah. Okay. When I was analyzing Tesla, a lot of people were comparing Tesla cars to kind of traditional, what's called internal combustion engine cars, ICE cars. And they were basically saying, well, it's going to be very easy for Ford General Motors and others to make electric, you know, electric cars. And I used the analogy of dumb phone, smartphone analogy. Okay. So when Nokia came out, I remember, so I own Nokia. So it's kind of interesting. I had to give you a small story. I own Nokia in 2004 and Motorola came out with a flip phone and Nokia kind of struggled for a few months and they didn't have a flip phone and Nokia struggled for a few months. The stock declined. And then six months later, they came out with a flip phone and I doubled my money. It was great. So that's not the lesson. The lesson was when in 2007, <laughs> Apple came out with iPhone, I was like, well, I know how this, you know, last time this happened, I made a lot of money. So I bet on Nokia. And the problem is this was not a change in the way it, you know, the phone looked. This was a form factor, right? This was a complete change. It's a, the phone went from one domain over dumb phones where to a smartphone. Which is, you know, which the first one was there to make phone calls and had maybe a little bit uh, computing power, a little bit. Well, where smartphones were really just a computer that does 200 other things plus also makes phone calls. So, and I made a mistake, you know, because I did not recognize the difference. I did not recognize that we shifted into new domain from dumb phones to smartphones domain, which is basically all the knowledge that you have in a dumb phone business, actually, most of it is actually is going to hurt you. Because think about Nokia at the time, generalizing now. If you think about dumb phone, it's 90% hardware, 10% software, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And a smartphone, the software is as important as hardware. I'm not sure it's 50-50, 60-40, it doesn't matter. But the software is incredibly important. So that means the Nokia's workforce was be- Nokia was designed for a very different product. So where iPhone could just focus from a blank slate perspective on focusing on a smartphone, Nokia basically had to let go of a whole bunch of engineers, which it won't need, you know, to design hardware, a brand new talent, 
which he didn't have, you know, operating system. And to make things even worse, Nokia had its operating system, uh, Symbian, which was basically created for dumb phones. And what it tried to do, because it has a lot of Symbian engineers, tried to adapt that operating system for smartphones. And it failed miserably because originally it was not designed for that. So this is one framework. Now, if you think about electric cars versus T cars, so the Tesla is a lot more than just a car that has an electric motor, right? It's a, first of all, think about General Motors. I don't know how many engineers it has that are trying to squeeze extra efficiency from IC engine, from the engine, from the IC, you know, internal combustion IC engine. Well, it won't need any of those engineers. It doesn't need any of those engineers for the electric motor, right? And also the, you know, electric car, Tesla car is a lot, you know, the software is so much more important in that car than it is in the you know, old cars. So my argument was that transition is going to be a lot more difficult for the traditional manufacturers. And Tesla actually, the fact that it's never made ICU cars, that's a huge advantage. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. I like that a lot because, you know, to a certain extent, you're right. It's not, you know, I'm going to rag on value investors being one myself. A lot of value investors look and wanted to value it as a GM or a Toyota or a Ford when it's not any of those cars. And, you know, we'll see what happens in the future, but you do have to kind of think of it in a different way if you're going to have the conviction to hold on to a stock like that for the long term. Let me make a couple extra points about Apple, which is kind of, you know, that's important if you own Apple stock. Let me tell you, I'm, today I'm going to be talking about all the mistakes I made. So uh, yeah. we, we own Apple stock. We made a lot of money. So we actually ended up selling Nokia. I think we took a 40% loss. On the summer, the second time, the first time I doubled money, the second time, basically, I think we lost 40%. And then we bought Apple in 2012 and we made a lot of money on this. But then I made an assumption in our models that the iPhone prices would decline. You know, why? Because every single time you had a consumer electronic, the prices per unit declined. You know, well, Apple did unthinkable and actually raised prices and the demand hasn't changed. And so my mistake in my analysis was that I, you know, it's a, I looked at it in the world where you have a, you know, where consumer electronics became a commodity for the most part. Well, Apple, because it's really just, you know, splits market share with Android. And once you buy Apple phone, you are very unlikely to switch to Android. That Apple actually has a lot of latent, which it increased. And you ask me about if I go back and look at my, you know, my assumption, you know, what I wrote. Well, that was a mistake. That was a clear mistake in my analysis. And so we sold Apple 100% ago. Like, you know, it's doubled since, since, you know, since we sold it. And the decision was wrong. That part of the decision was wrong because earnings power went up for the right reasons. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. As the guy who wrote a great book called Active Value Investing, are you looking at companies like Apple and Tesla as the market seems to keep falling? Are you even allowed to say with, no, with your no, fund? No, I, can, I can look at anything I want. No, of, of course. <laughs> no, I'm, uh, I'd be looking at a lot of companies that have fallen and I'm naturally attracted to them, especially you know, high quality businesses. At the right price, I'd be happy to own you know, Apple again and probably Tesla as well at, at some price. Yeah. 
All right. So I'd like to switch gears a little bit here. And we talked about like getting up at five o'clock in the morning every day to write. That's a habit. Yeah. And you talk a lot about your struggles with sugar, your struggles with meditation, yeah. and being able to do it and not do it. So how do you develop better habits? Okay, okay, good. So, no, it's great. It's, it's, <laughs> I love this question because I, I think I, I figured something out a couple of days ago. I want to share with you guys. Okay, so, good, because yeah. I'm, I'm dying to know. <laughs> so so the, the best way to develop habits is to start small. If you want to start writing, just start writing five minutes a day. Start with a sentence, something very easy, and just keep coming back. By doing this, if you do this long enough, if you, I think I forget that if you do it for three weeks or four weeks, it's going to turn into habit. Okay, and just try very, very hard to keep this habit. In fact, don't try. Say, I'm a person who writes. And when you say this, that becomes your identity. Now, to create habits, it's also important to link them to something else or stack habits. So I'll give an example. And this is the, I meditated the whole year without a single skip in a day by linking meditation to my walks in the park. So I walk in the park every single day in any weather, almost any weather. Okay. So I meditated for a year without skipping a day, but you know what happened? And then I fell off the wagon. You know how it happened? I just figured it out finally. I think this winter, when I went to work for in a park, it was incredibly cold for a few days and I could not sit and meditate. It was just too cold. So guess what happened? I skipped meditating for a few days. And then now I'm trying to get back into it and I'm going to, and since I tell myself I'm the person who meditates, I'll get back into meditation again. But I realized that like when I linked my habits to walking in the park, which is fine, worked all the time except two or three times. But those three times was enough for me to, you know, to kind of, to uh, fall off the wagon. But that's how you create your habits. So the small steps and kind of stacking, I think, yeah. Is that the kind of the idea that James Clear oh, was talking and, about and, in his and atomic, and I, exa- atomic Habits? Exactly. And I think I highly recommend that book. It's a phenomenal book. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I got it from him. I actually worked and improved it a little bit. So I'll give you this analogy. This thing I do. I found, maybe I forget when, maybe I think it was six months ago, maybe a year ago, I, I lost track of time, that I drink too much coffee. I literally found myself drinking six cups of coffee a day. <laughs> and, it's, and, I, and I like coffee, maybe the first cup I like because of how it makes me feel, but the rest, I just kind of like the flavor, which is, I just drink black coffee. But what I found that maybe second or third or sixth cup are really I consume them mindlessly. I just wander and make coffee. And so what I started doing, I said, okay, for every cup of coffee, I need to do 30 push-ups. And so now my consumption of coffee dropped to two or three cups of coffee a day. And I do push-ups. And I got healthy, you know, my, and I got healthy. You don't have to do, you can do crunches if you want, whatever you want. You know, you don't have to do push-ups. Everybody wins, right? Like, you know, because I drink less coffee and I get, I'm healthier. Another thing for anything you do, create what I call a minimum measurable unit. And I rode a bicycle. And every time I rode it, my MMU was just get out and ride. Then was get out and ride for 20 minutes. Then was ride and have a, at a certain speed or have so many revelations per second. And every single time I would increase it. And that became my, you know, my meaningful unit. When I walked in the park, it was the same thing. But then I hurt my back and my I still force myself to walk 
but just for as long as I can, I can bear a pain. But just have something you can fall back to. Okay, I'm going to do at least that. Did you have like a checklist or something? Or are you one of those people that likes to have like a notepad or something that, you know, so you can cross off the list or you, you can track your progress kind of thing? Does that help you? Know, you? It's, I know it helps some people. It doesn't, if I was keeping track of a lot of things and I would advise somebody not to do this, just keep it simple to just a few things. But like, you know, Jerry Seinfeld has this streak thing where he, every day he had to write a joke and, you know, that's fine if that works for you. You know, I don't need to do this because you know I keep it in my head. But again, just a few things a day. And he, but if it's if it helps you, just you know, maybe you can cross it on a calendar. But you know, I did this this day. Right. As somebody that's a failed meditationist, uh-huh. <laughs> what would you tell me to improve that? I've tried, and it just never took for me. I've tried it two or three times. I read actually about your struggles with it early yeah. on, and it just didn't work for me. So I guess what would you tell yeah. me? So I think I failed at meditation first before I succeeded for at least a year. The reason I failed because I had wrong images of meditations. Okay. You know, like the images you see of this beautiful skinny woman sitting on the cliff of the mountain looking at this either is a sunrise or sunset and she had a ponytail. And I realized, oh my gosh, for me to meditate, I need to find something like this. Well, in reality, you really don't. You just, you can, I read that, you know, you can actually, some people can meditate in a very loud environment, you know, next to jackhammer, kind of, you know, sound of jackhammer. So you can really meditate anywhere. And, uh, that's number one. Number two, the reason people get frustrated with meditation because they try to sit and breathe and not to think. And when they try not to think, they fail at that miserably. Okay. And they basically say, Oh, I cannot not think. Therefore, I'm not going to meditate. What they don't realize that that's a feature, not a bug. By you trying not to think and failing, you're creating a new habit of observing your thoughts. And like when I meditate, my MMU is one minute. I just try to get this one minute of perfect meditation out of 10, okay? And I fail even that it's one minute, you know, half the time, okay? But what you do when you close your eyes and you try to breathe and this thought comes to you and you want to notice that thought and that observation of this thought is incredibly important. The fact that you notice that thought, that's the skill you want to train. Here's why. Because that skill in itself will make you mindful. When you're driving in the car and you are, you know, somebody told you something, you're, you're upset about something, and you observe this thought that you, you realize, oh, I'm upset about this for this reason, just observation of the thought, you know, basically diffuses that thought and reduces your pain. That makes you mindful. That makes you observe your own thinking. This is why I think if you want to start, like start with three minutes, five minutes, it doesn't matter. Start with something. And actually, but when I say this, I'm really speaking to myself as well because I need to get back on the wagon again. And I meditate maybe two or three times a week right now, but I want to do it every single day. So I'll start with, you know, Dave, if you do it, I'll do it. I'll do three minutes a day if you do three minutes a day. So okay. but that's, got that, it. I'll do three minutes. Uh, but anyway, but that's, you know, that's, that would be my advice. I'm going to ask the dumb question here in the room. What's the biggest benefits that you've seen from meditation? So I think the, some people would say it makes you calmer. I didn't observe that. Like it didn't make me more. Sometimes you get into the zone, like it happens rarely. You get into the zone where you'd say almost like you're high on, I can't even explain it. It's very difficult to explain, but that's not why you do this. 
it's what I just described. It's that you, it, you basically training yourself to observe your own thoughts. And by observing your own thoughts, reduce a lot of negative emotions that are constantly in the back of your mind. You don't even notice them anymore. I think that's probably one of the biggest benefits to me. Also, like when you sit down and you are trying to control your breathing, you know, it's, of course it's going to calm you down too, but that's not why I do it. So does the meditation help you remove some of the self-talk, the negative self-talk? Is that, yeah, it's, is that it, kind it, of what it, you're referring exactly. to? Exactly. It, it helps to neutralize. It helps to neutralize the mm. negative self-talk. Yes. Because by, by, by right. so what yep. happens by this negative, something little happens and this self-talk, negative self-talk just kind of, it blows it up more and more and makes it larger. By us diffusing it, we reduce that, uh, you know, we reduce it and therefore it has a, become a healthier life, I guess. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So can you explain to me what soul in the game means? <laughs> soul in the game. Well, let's start with skin in the game, right? Skin in the game when, you share both upside and downside when you're doing something, you know, for somebody else. Like, you know, when the economy can um, so when I manage money, all my liquid net worth is invested in the same stocks and my clients. So therefore, mm-hmm. I have skin in the game. If I make a mistake on buying a company, then it's going to hurt me. And it's going to hurt my clients. But it's you know, oh, oh, the easiest example is when the cook eats his own cooking. Yeah, you know, that's you know, that's mm-hmm. he kills the skin in the game. Soul in the game is a kind of a next elevation of this, where the activity has so much meaning to you, that you love this activity, that it's basically becomes distinguishable from your identity. And um, you, if you think about people who are incredibly good at what they're doing, and who are dripping these emotions when they're talking about what they're doing, those people, or you know these people, like if you want to take your kids to a doctor, you want him to take it to the doctor who has soul in the game, who is not just doing it because he's trying to pay for his student bills. You know, the same thing with any activity in your life. When you go to a restaurant and you have this waitress who has this incredible personality who really wants to take care of you. You know, this, this woman has soul in the game. So it could be any activity. But that's basically what's kind of on a high level what soul in the game is. I love that concept. And I love that was probably honestly my favorite part of the book was the soul in the game chapter, because I think that's something that has always attracted me to people and different things is when you sense that soul in the game, I guess I had never put that connection Mm -hmm. together, but the soul in the game, I think that's something that I always found attractive, Mm -hmm. whether it's athletes, musicians, you know, investors, writers, you know, a waitress, anything that was easily my favorite chapter in the book. This became part of our culture at AMA. So when we do something, like peer people say, oh, you know, we got to have a soul in the game when we do this, or, we, or just don't do it. So yeah, so this is, yeah, that's very important to us. I liked how in the beginning of the book, you you wrote a little thing, you said, to my children, and you had their names, yeah. and you said, because you never read my emails. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully they read your book. They, they, Could you yeah, summarize? They, yeah, go ahead. Uh, maybe for uh, any parents out there who maybe want to, Maybe they have kids your children's age, and maybe they want to give a book like this to them. What would be some of the biggest parts of the book that could be helpful for those parents and those children? Um, that's a good question. I was talking to a reader a couple of days ago who read my book, and he was raving about it. And he said, he, you know, I think every person graduating from high school should read this book. I was flattered by this. So, you know, I wrote it for my kids because in this book, I downloaded all the thoughts all the things I wish I knew when I was their age, okay? 
and when they're older. Like I wish I knew them when I was, you know, when I became a parent. So I think Stoic philosophy is something that could help anybody at any point in their life, actually. My eight-year-old is probably a little bit too young for that, but my 16-year-old daughter and 21-year-old son are primed for that. And we talk about Stoic philosophy all the time. And more importantly, I consider myself practicing Stoic. What does it mean? I try very hard to live by those ideas. Now, I fail all the time. And that because I'm trying to rewrite the behavior that's been formed for most of my life. So it's very difficult to rewrite. And so when I fail, I talk to my kids about it. And I say, here's what I did. Here's what I did wrong. This is how I should have done it. And I find that to be extremely important because my kids realize that it's okay to strive for that and it's okay that you're not going to succeed every single time. But if you do this long enough, then you're going to rewrite your habits and you're going to start and the world is going to become easier to go through life. Let me just clarify what Stoic philosophy is. Stoic philosophy is basically, it's a 2,000-year-old philosophy out from Greece. When I say Stoic and I say philosophy, it sounds very scary and intimidating. But really, it's really not. It's a beautiful philosophy, very simple. And I look at it as an operating system for life. The reason I call it operating system for life, because when you're born, we're not really given, uh, the way we behave is formed by our parents, by our friends, you know, by our life, right? I don't think we are really told, the Stoic philosophy provides this curriculum that helps you to deal with life and removes this kind of negative emotions. It lowers the uh, volatility of negative emotions. How's that? And therefore, I think it could help anybody. And the beauty of this, it doesn't, you know, it's, it's not a religious philosophy. So it doesn't conflict. Uh, if you're religious, it's going to help you. If you're not religious, it's going to help you. And it had a tremendous impact on me. And I'm still learning. I'm still practicing. I'm trying to improve. And hopefully next time we talk, I'll be better at that. That's right. You, me, and Dave all <laughs> And Dave will be meditating at that point. Yeah, maybe. At least three minutes That's a right. day. <laughs> At least yeah. three minutes a day. I'm going to start tomorrow morning, I promise you. I've been trying see, off see, and on. See, so. the, see the, the, actually, here's the thing, actually. Let me point something out. And I make this mistake all the time myself. So this is, when you say, I try, it's one thing. What you need to get to, we say, I'm the person who meditates. I'll give you an example. And this is actually from James Clear book. When somebody offers you cigarettes, and you say, oh, i trying to quit smoking. That means, I can promise you, that means that you're going to you know, fall off the wagon in about a week. Okay? Right. When somebody offers you a cigarette and you say, I don't smoke, right? Then you are the person that actually tells you that that's the behavior of my identity. Okay? I'm the person who doesn't smoke. So what you need to, like, when I say you, Dave, it's you and me. You and me. Yeah. Us right. need to get back to the point where we say, I'm the person who meditates. Three minutes a day, it doesn't matter, 10 minutes a day, an hour a day. Right. But I'm the person who meditates, and then that will become part of your identity. By the way, anything you do like this, I'm the person mm -hmm. who doesn't eat sugar. Therefore, when somebody offers me a cake, it doesn't matter. I don't need, you know, it's a non decision decision because I don't eat sugar. Right. Yeah. I agree with you 100%. It kind of goes back to the, the whole Yoda quote in Star Wars, right? There is no try, there's do or That's do right. not. Yeah. <laughs> so that famous Stoic philosopher Yoda. That's right. No, I listen. Uh, <laughs> why not? 
So we've talked a lot about the different parts of the book and everything. And I would be remiss if we didn't discuss, you know, music. So I know music is obviously a very big part of your life. So I guess what can we learn from classical composers? I mean, how, how do you tie a lot of the book into music and what can we learn? You know, even if it's somebody that doesn't listen necessarily to classical music, what can we learn from like Schubert and Chopin and some of the, the great others that you mentioned yeah, in the book? Well, think about they were all writing music. Okay, I'm composing the music, writing, investing. Those are creative activities, right? Creativity, yeah. yeah. And therefore, we can look at how their life stories and their struggles and realize that, and this is what we can learn from them. Let me tell you this funny story. There's this composer, Hector Berlioz, who grew up in France, and he fell in love with this Shakespearean actress. I think her name is was Harriet Smith. He was in love with her, and he wrote her love letters, and she never replied to the letters. And uh, he was so devastated, he rented an apartment across the street from her apartment. And he decided he's going to write a symphony just for her. It became called a fun- symphony fantastique, which is one of the most famous symphonies out there. The interesting part, Hector Berlioz started to study music late in his life. Well, late, all relative, when he was 12 or 13 years old. You know, that's relatively late. And therefore, he did not receive as much of classical education as many other composers. And therefore, when he was breaking the rules of music composition, he did not even know them. You know, there is a theory that he was completely high when he wrote the music. <laughs> I'm not advocating for that part. But him not knowing the rules, or, or this is important, or he may be observing the rules and saying, those rules are not, it's not like they are, those are rules are just adopted conventions. It doesn't mean I have to follow them. By the way, that requires mindfulness. We were talking about meditation. Yep. You're doing this and you say, well, I'm supposed to do this, this, and this. And then you say, who said I'm supposed to? Anyway, so let me give you an example. Let me talk about sympathy for the stick because that's important. Before Hector Berlioz, there was no program symphonies. What does program symphony mean? So program music is a music that basically has a story inside of it. So the, the simplest example would be a musical, right? Or an opera. Mm-hmm. An opera has a, there is a story, a play, and then there is music on top of that. Okay. So and that music kind of follows the story. Well, it was never done before with symphonies. Hector Berlioz, he had, you know, this love was raging inside of him and he wrote this very, dark story about, you know, dark story and wrote a symphony around the story. Okay. And that symphony became an incredible success because people were not used to it and they loved it. So Harriet listened, you know, she was not at the premiere, but she listened to the, she heard the symphony. She started to take him seriously. They got married. And then I think her career kind of went downhill and, you know, the marriage fell apart. But now we have the symphony for the stick uh, because of her. So you can see how there's so much we can learn from Berlioz in whatever activity we are doing. There's a whole bunch of shortcuts. There is a lot of dogma that says you should, this is how you do this. Okay. Like let's go back to Tesla for a second. Elon Musk, when he was making electric car, 
the fact that you know he didn't really you know he didn't actually have any, any experience of making uh, traditional cars was a big benefit to him because he looked at it and says, well, instead of make, when I make a four-wheel drive car, instead of having a this complex transmission, I'll just put two motors on the front axle and the back axle. And that's how I'm going to make a four-wheel drive car. So that's an example of somebody looking at it and ignoring the dogma or not being influenced by how things been done before. Another example, if you look at the Model 3, at the interior of the Tesla Model 3, it's a completely different design. It's not like a, it's a revolutionary, not evolutionary design. I mean, in the sense that there are no buttons. And if you are General Motors engineer, interior designer working for General Motors, for the last 20 years of your life, you've been just changing the shape of buttons or their locations, okay? The idea of actually creating a screen like an iPad and putting all the controls there was just completely outside of your domain, right? We talked about how you go from dumb phones to smartphones, different domains, same thing. And so when you look at you know, Tesla car Model 3, he basically completely changed how the car looks inside. And again, like Barry when he wrote Symphony of the Stick. That's great. I love that idea of, I guess, breaking the rules, partly because they don't know the rules. I, When I was a musician, well, I am a musician, but back in the day, I, I came across a gentleman who played in a big mm-hmm. band that was from Australia. And he came from the outback in Australia. He didn't know the rules. And so he came up with this completely different way of playing the guitar that made him very unique. And it was because he didn't know the rules. And when you sat down and listened to him, it was just amazing. And yeah, I love that. What what, what instrument do you play? Oh, Guitar. Yeah, I went to college, got a degree in music, played in bands for years, yeah. did it until I wanted to have a family and, you know, I wanted to actually sleep in a bed. So <laughs> it <laughs> changed it, my it life. Is, so <laughs> it is very hard to earn a living as a musician. My, uh, yes. my niece graduated from Royal College of Music, which is kind of Juilliard of Europe and, uh, she mm-hmm. and viola. And now she's teaching a whole bunch of eight year olds, you know, and wipes the nose, basically, with your, with your right, reputation. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah so. <laughs> it's a challenging yeah. life, but yeah. it, there's a lot of great things that come from it, too. You certainly learn a lot of discipline and a lot of patience. And, you know, my grandmother used to have this saying that I've bored Andrew with a few times, that water dripping on a stone eventually makes an Absolutely. impression. And, you know, that was my guitar. That was my guitar. So you, could, so you could relate to a lot of the stuff I wrote about classical music and uh, creativity. You could really relate yes. to it, I guess. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. It was fantastic. All right. Well, Andrew, did you have anything else you'd like to discuss? This no, was this awesome. was great. Awesome. Um, Vitaly, I do have to share a personal thing. I, you talk in the book about a trip you took, I believe it was with Mia Sarah to San Francisco and, or maybe it was Hannah. Hannah. I'm, yeah. I'm going to. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. You were talking about just having moments with yeah. your daughter and how those are precious to you and that that's something that you guys will remember for the rest of your life. And that 
little bit has stuck with me and I have an eight-year-old daughter and there are times when I'm doing things with her that I have to remember to focus on what it is we're doing and try to connect with her because those moments will stay with us for the rest of our lives. And it's not about the things we do. It's just about the time we share together. And I, I really enjoyed that story and really has moved. I want to you thank know, you for I, that. I think so. Thank you so much for this. Actually, let me just tell you a new story. Yesterday, I, uh, we had a little scare and I took my daughter Hannah to the hospital. I ended up not being, you know, fine. Everything, everything was fine. But it was, you know, the first hour was kind of somewhat scary. And then we, once she felt better, we made just a lot, we, we just made it like a very fun and loving experience out of the whole thing. When she was hooked up to the machine, you know, like to the, all the, all the monitors <laughs> and the, you know, it's, and the machine starts to beep. I said, Hannah, you gotta be careful. Your IQ is dropping. Like, you know, we, <laughs> we made all these jokes. And I'll tell you this, that that experience with her, again, obviously it's a good thing that it's, you know, it, and it had a very good ending, okay. but uh, we even tried to make fun of, you know, kind of, uh, that was a meaningful experience for us, just going to the hospital. Yeah. But thank you. No, thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're welcome. So, Vitaly, we want to thank you for coming on. You've got a ton of great resources. You have your new book, Soul in the Game. People can also check out your blog, contrarianedge.com. And you have a great email newsletter as well. Anywhere else people should check you out, or is that pretty much where they should go? Well, no, that's a, that's a great question. So a couple things. First of all, I could not stop writing this book after it got published. So I already wrote five new chapters, actually, you know, I'm finishing two more. So if you go to soulinagame.net, there are instructions where after you buy the book, you can send, you know, you can basically get five new chapters I wrote since. So so check out soulinagame.net and you'll be able to you know subscribe to my articles there as well. Or People who listen to this podcast or watch it probably like to listen as much as they like to read. We have a podcast where basically my articles are read, you know, to you by a professional artist. So it, it's a podcast. You can find it on investor.fm or just go, or just look for intellectual investor podcast or you look for my name and you find the podcast. And, uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, and it actually kind of get into glimpse of my, you know, what I'm working on right now or thinking about right now. It's a, it's my first name and last initial Vitali K. Yeah. Cool. Well, Vitaly, again, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate you sharing all your insights and your time with us. We know your time is valuable and we, we do really appreciate that. And it's all this stuff is fantastic. I've been a big fan for a long time. I've really enjoyed his writing. You're welcome. And I, I've enjoyed his writing and his ideas and it's all worth checking out. You'll be better for it. So without any further ado, I'll go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with the margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week. We'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.